Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm very happy to welcome on the show Toby Simpson, COO and co-founder of Fetch.ai. Welcome, Toby. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So Fetch.ai is an artificial intelligence lab. You're building an open access, tokenized, decentralized machine learning network. Obviously, there's a lot in that, so we're going we're gonna to have to unpack it uh, for everybody. But the promise is that this allows any organization or indeed individual to build or configure applications on top of a digital representation of the world. And these applications are effectively driven by what you now call software agents, I guess in the world of crypto and Web3, autonomous economic agents, AEAs is another way to, to call them. Um, and these software agents autonomously search, negotiate and transact to form bottom-up marketplaces. The reason why I've got you on the show, I've been working with you and Hermione and the Fetch team since, God, 2017, is that possible? Uh, yes. <laughs> you were one of the first projects we incubated. As a disclaimer, Outlier is probably the biggest holder of FET, the token that drives uh, the FETCH protocol outside of FETCH Foundation and, and you guys. In fact, I believe I was even the one that came up with the name Fetch.ai, you know, not to, not to kind of... Well, not to take too much credit though, eh, Jamie? <laughs> but that was about it, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of amazing stuff that happened at Fetch that I had nothing to do with. But as some listeners will already know, I've, I've been obsessed with the convergence of blockchain and AI for some time, and you were our first investment into that thesis. Uh, you were some of the first people, AI people, to come into the blockchain space and to start thinking about how we can transition from uh, pretty dumb blockchains um, with supposedly smart contracts, but that are actually operating on very basic logic to something that could be used uh, at greater scale and be harnessed by the world of, of machine learning. And for me, if you kind of follow that line of uh, reasoning, the idea of an agent-based web where the DNA of Web3, you know, the sovereignty of the user versus the platform is kind of baked into that, this is going to be an incredible transformational driver for, for what Web3 is. So really looking forward to exploring some of these themes with you. Lovely. Yes, indeed. And it, it was that that whole convergence that these individual technologies, when you look at them, um, well, when you look at them individually, they're still pretty amazing. But when you start combining them, then out of that, you get uh, something considerably more than the sum of its parts. And that's certainly what excited us coming from an AI and an agent background when we looked at what it was that we could get out of blockchain, but also other cryptographic technologies that are beginning to mature and find their ways into this space too. 
Exactly. So let's kind of contextualize you as, as a founder, as a co-founder and your kind of journey here. Um, normally, I, I kind of rattle through this stuff uh, to get into the meat of the interview. But, you know, your background and the work that you've done is fascinating, but also very informative, I think, to unpacking some of these big concepts around machine learning that will allow us to understand you know what you're doing at, at fetch so we'll, we'll probably go spend a little bit longer than i would normally um in this section so back in 1991 you were producer at creature labs where you designed and programmed a number of different games for things like amiga and the big game there was creatures where you ended up creating a series creatures uh, two and three and I think this is really informative to how you've come to, to, to create Fetch and, and some of the principles that drives it. Could you explain a little bit about creatures? Yeah, that was an interesting journey, actually, because one of the great sayings about software is complexity kills. And uh, one of the things I've been saying recently, you know, when people ask the difference between 2G and 3G, 3G and 4G, etc., I would just say it's several orders of magnitude more software. And it's that additional complexity. I and mean, we've often said, you know, the more, more plumbing you've got, the easier it is to block up the pipes. Uh, and I learned that firsthand in the early 90s, uh, creating computer games on the Amiga assembly language and totally drowning in, in 100,000 lines of assembly language and been unable to manage all of that complexity. And I was introduced to the idea of approaching the problem from a different angle. So instead of writing a piece of code to solve a problem, to write or put in place all the building blocks that would allow the problem to largely solve itself. And uh, when I got to Creatures, that was, I guess, the, the, the pinnacle of seeing that process in action, uh, in that we modeled a whole bunch of uh, biological building blocks and joined them together to create an artificial organism. Uh, and, and the creator of that technology often said, you know, there's no such thing as half an organism, which I would completely agree with. Uh, and, and from that perspective, he said, you can't just have a brain existing by itself. You need the supporting biochemistry to act as a feedback mechanism in order to ensure that it's able to, to learn by itself. Uh, and you also need the inputs and outputs to connect you to the real world so that you can affect the world around you, but also um, be, be affected by that world. And I would still argue, even to this day, uh, it must be, goodness, uh, 25 years down the line, that Creatures is still the most advanced example of uh, an artificial organism. What interests me about this, of course, is that we created these general purpose problem solvers that were able to solve a problem that they'd not been exposed to before. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because you didn't write an enormous amount of code. Suddenly we wrote a large population of simple things and they, they worked together to solve bigger, grander problems. Uh, and that was really interesting. I went on to explore the usage of that kind of technology for virtual people in massively multiplayer online games, because you, you don't want the barman to offer you another drink when the bar's burning down. Um, but you don't want to have to define a rule that says, if the bar's burning down, don't serve the drinks, um, because that doesn't scale, particularly when you've got lots of human beings involved. And, and actually, this kind of approach of, of drive-driven biochemistry-backed artificial organisms is incredibly effective at dealing with these things in a plausible, lifelike way. Um, so that was effectively the introduction to that agent-based approach. 
And you can see how that maps to the modern digital economy that we're building with blockchain type things. You know, you've got your oracles, which are conduits between the real world or the outside world and, and inside the blockchain space. You've got your um, smart contracts, you've got your little units of code that are acting as small, small building blocks. But the one thing that you've got now, which we didn't have back then, is this ability to scale it indefinitely. And that was the thing that excited me most about blockchain when I suddenly realized, well, goodness gracious me, having spent the best part of a decade trying to figure out how to build the matrix in my living room, I'm suddenly sitting on a piece of technology that means I can build a virtual world as large as I want. And there is no theoretical limit to how big that can get. Uh, and, and, and that, as we, we walked into the whole space with Fetch, was, was one of the things that was just so incredibly exciting that we could create this scale. And when you can create that scale in, in a modern digital economy with billions of moving parts, suddenly you can begin to see plausibly how you would conduct that orchestra in order to create some really fantastic music. Yeah, and we're going to come back to, I guess, how you arrived at the combination of, of, of blockchain and AI a little bit later. So from a, a Creature Labs, that was 1999 to 2000, you then went on to Nice Tech Limited for a, another 11 years and where you worked on something called Alice Server. Similarly, this was around biologically inspired, agent-orientated, massively multi-user simulation engines. And it was all this kind of work that you were doing that led you to be kind of picked, chosen by DeepMind. I think you were employee number one, two or three, but you, you joined there as head of software design. Of course, DeepMind went on to be um, bought by Google to become effectively their uh, primary AI initiative. Um, but it was specifically the work that you'd been doing in these uh, biologically inspired learning systems that was the reason why you were brought in to DeepMind. Can you explain why specifically that background was was of interest to DeepMind and its founder? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd known Demis for quite some time, actually. Um, and uh, I think it was in the mid-2000s, I went down and, and gave him a demo of, of Alice Server. One of the demos we were showing people at the time was this thing I, I lovingly called World in a Box. And you started with one agent, and then there was two, four, eight, 16. And then suddenly you had a whole world with trees, plants, and shrubs um, appearing out of nowhere. And the most amazing thing about that is unlike most games at the time, none of it was scenery, all of it was real. So you could, in fact, in theory, um, reverse a, a, a Jeep into a tree, knock it over and then build a log cabin. And no part of the code would have to know anything about log cabins or trees for that to be possible, uh, which meant that, that the world could be interacted with in the way human beings do. And that is that humans are unpredictable. You go into a space and we think of novel new ways of interacting with it. And, and games are very restrictive. And you're often reminded of why you can't do something or the fact that that's not a real rock, it's actually just a piece of scenery. It's, it's a plot device or not a plot device or just something an artist created. And the advantage with our approach is if you didn't like the forest you were looking at, you could just switch it off and create another one in a few seconds. Uh, and that ability to create endless, infinite environments, I thought was really interesting. And it matched very well to a lot of the stuff that Demis had been doing um, in, in the late 90s and, and, and early 2000s. And that sort of approach of, of taking a, a biological perspective on things and building things that would grow and breed and pass on um, uh, things that define what they do and how they look from generation to generation, that he, he thought was a really interesting additional approach to have involved in, in that journey that they were going to be taking. 
Um, so it, it felt like a, a, an obvious choice to get involved with that. And it was a, it was a huge privilege to, to be part of that, that journey, particularly so close to the beginning of it. And what were the domains at DeepMind that this approach was being applied to? So obviously, you know, you developed a lot of this in the context of, of gaming, um, naturally, I guess, because it, it, it's probably the, you know, having these large-scale environments you know, probably gave you something that you couldn't have in the real world at that point. But what kind of domains were you applying this technology to at DeepMind at that point? Well, it's general purpose problem solving. The idea that given a puzzle that you haven't been exposed to, uh, an organism can or an agent can learn how to make sense of it and survive in that environment without needing a bunch of rules to do so. Uh, and this, incidentally, is one, one of the reasons, of course, why uh, computer game environments are so um, popular when it comes to building and training um, modern AI, because they are rich, interesting environments to interact with. So you often see people uh, playing or building AIs, uh, AI units to play, uh, say, Quake or to play uh, real-time strategy games, because they are rich, interesting, diverse environments that you need to have an understanding of in order to do something sensible in. So gaming environments are great places to do this stuff. But this general purpose approach, this approach that, that uh, lends itself a little bit more to biology, uh, is, is a really good way of creating things that can learn by themselves with, without an external input. That, that ability to, to learn without supervision, given a brand new environment and, and a brand new set of problems, is, is a valuable part of the stepping stones that everybody is trying to take towards a general purpose intelligence, a true one, an AGI. Right. So you left DeepMind 2013, you went to uh, OssoSim Limited, doing similar things, um, general purpose simulation engine again, and then you moved on to uh, found Fetch with Hermione. So you met Hermione prior to DeepMind, I believe you'd kind of been in each other's orbit for well over a decade. And he was also one of the first angel investors into DeepMind. But uh, how did you guys meet one another? You know, I can't exactly remember precisely how we met. I think there was there was another project that he was working on that, funnily enough, involved Demis. Um, and, and we met around, around that sort of time, I'd say a good 10 to 15 years ago, uh, and uh, shared some of the same thoughts about uh, the, the problems with, with complexity of software. And I was looking at this from, from a gaming perspective, and, and he was looking at it from other perspectives, and was sort of thinking, well, at what point are we going to arrive somewhere where all of the technological building blocks are present to allow us to do things of, of this enormous scale that, that we want to do? Uh, and at that time, it sort of seemed quite, quite, quite impossible to be able to do that. So I met you in 2017. I met you both. I remember the meeting uh, clearly. It was a, a mutual contact of ours, um, Melissa. And it was a perfect kind of point of serendipity in that you guys were working on what I'd been envisaging was was this convergence of, of blockchain and AI. And at that point, actually, you were trying to solve a very particular problem. Um, if I recall, it was around kind of traffic management systems for, for drones, but in a in a decentralized way. Yeah. Now, that was quite interesting, actually, because that, that was that was quite that was quite some journey um, because we were we were looking at, at how uh, you could effectively treat individual drones as autonomous economic units in, in their own right, uh, and how you could create a system that would effectively manage and plan and deal with a large, a large fleet 
without the need to have a single point of failure, a single centralized control unit. So all of these things could effectively argue amongst themselves to, to, to get things done. Uh, and what became more interesting then is we started looking at the individual drones and thinking, well, actually, if these things are carrying a bunch of cameras and a bunch of other sensors, why aren't those um, economic units in their own right? Why can't they negotiate with the, with the flight hardware to say, well, could you just take a small diversion so I can take a picture of this or sense that or, or do this and do that? And suddenly there'd be all this additional utility value that would come out of a single unit that might be just flying somewhere to um, uh, take a few pictures and then a whole bunch of other components on the drone would then negotiate in order to get even more value out of that. Uh, and, and that would start uh, uncovering um, what it is that we, we tend to waste on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in the economy right now, simply because there's so much of it that no centralized point of management can possibly organize at all. Uh, and it was that sort of journey as you go further and further down through the drones, and then you start thinking, oh, well, actually, um, there's an enormous amount of additional knowledge that you can get. So if you've got three or four drones flying around and they've got sensors for uh, mobile signal strength or whatever, then you've got AI you can apply on top of that. So now you've got this learning going on and you've got another agent on top of, the, of that picking up all of this learning and delivering that value. And it sort of spread uh, upwards and downwards from, from, from the drone into this grander agent vision, which of course is, is how we ended up at at Fetch, the idea that it seemed wasteful to apply this extraordinary combination of technologies to just that, when in fact not only could it do that, but you could attach autonomous economic agents to almost everything, um, to every vehicle that's going around, to pieces of data that have been generated, to IoT devices, to people, uh, to pretty much anything that you could think of. And if you could come up with the scale that you would need to be able to connect them all in effectively in the same environment, um, and the learning and AI you would need to connect them effectively, then you're really looking at something interesting. And so, you know, this journey or mission around a decentralized form of machine learning really evolved from there. You had to kind of pretty much build down the stack to solve for a problem initially that you were, you, you were starting to do at the application layer almost and, and realize that at that point, um, a lot of the, the infrastructure was missing. I think before we go into that, it would be good to just get a, a high level understanding or definition of collective learning because obviously collective learning is is the big concept behind fetch but it's perhaps you know quite elusive for the average person to understand so could you just give us a, a bit of a primer on collective learning yeah actually collective learning is just one part of course uh, to um, the whole fetch ai thing but it is a very interesting one as you point out uh, because we live in a world where uh, people are collecting an awfully large amount of data and some of it for a variety of different reasons can't be shared. Um, so in, for example, in healthcare, you've got a whole bunch of data that can't be shared because it's confidential and because the paperwork required in order to be able to share that is nightmarishly complex and varies dramatically depending on what the data is and where you are in the world. But then there's also data that's confidential. Uh, and you're sitting there thinking, well, it would be lovely if we could generate a machine learning model from our data and everybody else's data, but we don't want to give our data to them and they won't want to give their data to us, so how are we going to do this? Collective learning is the solution to that. Um, it's the, uh, the ability for a large number of people to contribute in a decentralized way to an overall learning model and for that to benefit everybody. So you know, there's a couple of examples of that, of course. Um, uh, one of them is, uh, say, for example, uh, 
particularly modern modern vehicles, modern 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 cars, are collecting a huge amount of data and sending them back to HQ about the performance of the vehicle. Ideally, um, that data is then used to figure out models to predict when vehicles might fail. So you, you can advise someone to go in for a service or to have something changed or altered before it becomes expensive and complex. Um, now, wouldn't it be great if one car manufacturer could combine their data with somebody else's in order to end up with a better model that benefited them both, but with neither having to give away their um, confidential proprietary data? That's where collective learning comes in. In, in healthcare, where you've got a whole bunch of, of, of different things that might, for example, allow you to build a better model for detecting or diagnosing potential conditions um, before you would otherwise be able to do so, you're sitting on a huge amount of confidential patient data. Uh, collective learning means that you can all contribute to a model, the model gets better, and nobody has have to, have to give up that uh, uh, confidential data. So that's what makes that very exciting. And what's really exciting about it is being able to do it in a, a truly decentralized way, because you absolutely want to avoid central points of failure and central points of control, where any of that or combined of any of that data actually ends up resting. And that's obviously very important. If you look at the overall AI universe, which is generally proprietary and dominated by a handful of platforms, um, you know, Google being the most dominant and why we're seeing initiatives like OpenAI almost to kind of counter that. But still, this is a technology that is highly permissioned. Um, so currently with OpenAI, if you wanted to use the latest instance, GPT-3, uh, you have to get permission uh, in order to use it. And so the thing about Fetch is this unpermissionless part. So in the intro, when I was talking about the idea that this was open access, tokenized, decentralized machine learning. The open access part is, is really key to this as well, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, and um, certainly in the case of collective learning, you can see how that would work in a, in a decentralized way with no one entity being in control. And that's really good because every individual is in control of how that works. But of course, also there's there are other aspects to this. Uh, it's the sort of AI Lego approach that you can build autonomous economic agents that solve particular problems or that um, buy up uh, lower value data and transform them into something interesting. Uh, and then you're effectively providing a network where all of these things can be connected to each other in an effective way. So if you want something, there is a way of describing it so that you can find it. Uh, and, and that overall search mechanism is another key part of this. And of course, AI exists on the outside from an applications perspective, but of course also it exists on the inside um, from, from a technology perspective, because if you're trying to find something and you don't know how to describe it precisely, how on earth can you do that? Now, it turns out, of course, there are some, some very well understood uh, techniques for, for doing that in, in machine learning that allow you through dimensional reduction to effectively position things um, so that things that are likely to be similar are close to each other. In a, in a reduced dimensional space. And that's really interesting because you don't even have to be entirely accurate and then you can um, sling a, a circle around a certain um, radius and capture everything that you might be interested in. Uh, and when you're effectively turning tens of billions into just a few hundred with, with something like that, that's a very, very effective uh, method of, of searching in a context uh, sensitive way. So why, why blockchain? I think we by now understand the importance of having a decentralized form of machine learning or AI, but specifically how does blockchain solve for that? And you know, why, why does it require a token? 
Yeah, now this is a this is a fun one, isn't it? Because this is one of those ones which, uh, when when we first met, Jamie, I I, I was still not, I guess, one hundred percent convinced of, of how all of this stuff works. And I tell you what, I I wish I'd uh, met you a few years earlier, um, and 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 got a bit of a head start on all of this. Blockchain, well, I mean, I did a, I did a talk um, a couple of years ago. I think it was now. Goodness, time flies. Called the first rule of blockchain club, uh, which I described as been completely unable to explain blockchain to anybody else. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that this is an area it, it's where we don't do that very well. Um, we, we talk about blockchain uh, potentially just in the field of, of Bitcoin without really understanding what it is that the blockchain is doing. And that ability to maintain a, an overall ledger amongst a great number of parties without it being economically practical uh, in any way, shape or form to modify the past is really the key thing about that, because what that really means is you've got integrity of a data structure with no one person but in charge. And you can keep adding more people uh, to the processing of that data structure and individuals can come and go. Uh, and yet anybody can self-service establish what the truth is by looking at that ledger and working backwards. Now, you may think, well, yeah, surely that's just a just, just a banking and a, and, a, and a financial thing. But actually, uh, it means that you can hold any large scale data structure together. So you get scale. And when we were thinking about constructing an environment in which autonomous economic agents could exist, the idea that you could just simply keep adding nodes to that network and get bigger and bigger scale by adding the capacity to add more and more agents to it and to potentially allow those individual nodes on the network to specialize either by location or um, semantically or both uh, meant that suddenly we were able to see, well, there's no limit anymore. There's no hard, obvious limit to how many of these agents we can attach to this network. Now, the token, of course, is uh, the fundamental incentive mechanism that makes it more, um, more costly to be dishonest than honest. Uh, and, and that was, of course, why, why Bitcoin actually worked, um, that uh, there, there was this incentive for people to uh, run the numbers in order to be able to, to do all of this. Uh, and there were there were those rewards for 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 doing so. So they are intimately tied with each other. The the underlying token and and and, and the network and the ability to actually hold it all together. Um, but of course, then you've got that that native token. You've now got a uh, method of value exchange between all of the autonomous economic agents in the case of Fetch. Uh, and you can do it practically because, I mean, we often thought right at the very beginning as well. You know. Who's going to pay very much for um, the temperature out of somebody's back garden down a street? You know, these are potentially very low-value things. So if you're paying a tenth or, or, or less of a cent for a piece of data like that, you know, the transaction costs have to be way less than that for it to be practical. And when we looked at the, the different combinations of blockchain technology, I mean, Bitcoin's not exactly a great example, and nor is Ethereum when it comes to transaction costs. But there are other solutions and other um, methods of handling consensus where you get that high transaction throughput and you get those low transaction costs. And suddenly you can imagine these millions, if not billions, of autonomous um, economic agents actually getting work done and been able to do these, these microtransactions as all of this data and information moves around the network. So, so Bitcoin was the enabling piece. I mean, we already had everything else. We understood how agent-based environments work. Um, we, we'd seen the emergent behavior that you could get. And we understood a number of the AI components that, that we would use for this and the learning components. Um, and, and we knew that small units of, of intelligence um, uh, could combine 
to produce uh, grander insights into all of this, but blockchain was that missing bit that let us tie it all together. So in effect, now you've been able to introduce, I guess, an economic layer or economic agency into agent-based systems in a decentralized way. And the flip side is you've also introduced an intelligence layer to the world of blockchain. And so I really like that idea of AI Lego and how that might speak to this idea of, of money Lego, which um, is obviously kind of another way of talking about DeFi, which has exploded on, on top of uh, Ethereum. So, you know, can you just talk a little bit about that AI Lego concept and I guess how how that comes into existence um, across multiple chains in a cross-chain universe. Yeah, and, and that interoperability is actually very, very important because I mean, people often say in this space, and we see it a lot, and I, see, I guess we'll, we'll see it a lot less as time goes on. Um, people say, well, surely Ethereum is the solution to everything, or surely Bitcoin is the solution to everything, or surely this, that, or wherever is the solution to everything. But actually, none of that's true. Um, they all uh, are different and they solve different problems. And the idea that you can effectively connect the unique capabilities of all of these different networks together in, in a way that's, that's meaningful is actually really fascinating and incredibly exciting. And it also means we can unlock a lot more of the potential value by being able to use these, these unique features. Uh, and this is one of the things that we realized very early on when we were uh, uh, talking about uh, fetch that actually there's a whole class of agents that act as interfaces between um, both between the blockchain world and the real world effectively as oracles um, and, uh, and 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 also um, those that allow you to communicate between uh, and interact between all of these different chains and they're effectively service agents um, and, and more for that matter that, that mean that the the unique capabilities of these things can be can be packaged up and attached to autonomous economic agents and that means that there's additional value and additional ways of, of, of exploring. And right when, when we started talking about this, one of the things that came out of my work um, back in, with Alistair back in the 2000s was, and that's a, an agent-based mass multiplayer online game engine. And the idea was that an agent could meaningfully interact with another agent in, even though it had never seen it before. And we have the same thing here with Fetch, that we want agents, in fact, we've got agents that are meaningfully able to interact with each other with no prior exposure. And that means that you, you wipe away in one go all of that horrific complexity of having uh, agents having to know about all of the details of the other agents that they're going to interact with. And it's that kind of thing um, that has allowed us to build some of the really cool stuff that we built recently in, for example, in mobility. So uh, in the version 2 update, which happened uh, quite recently, um, you have now enabled this interoperability um, with a Cosmos hub and then with Ethereum via this Cosmos IBC bridge. So what, what is that going to make possible on Cosmos or Ethereum that isn't possible today? Well, in fact, I think it comes down to what, what you were just talking about with, with AI Lego, only it's, it's more than that. I guess it's, it's blockchain um, capability Lego. Uh, it suddenly means that all of these systems can effectively be connected as one continuous world uh, and that autonomous economic agents in the fetch space are reasonably able to make use of all of the features and communicate with the things that they need to in, in these other spaces. 
Um, so, for example, with the decentralized delivery network that we've got, um, we've we've built that. The moment that the the way that works is it uses Ethereum contracts, but they're fetch agents existing on a fetch space, and the the ability to be able to combine those two things is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and and the same applies across the space with with all of these other. Um, networks and capabilities too, but suddenly you, you've got all these additional pieces, uh, and, and whether that's, that's DeFi, whether that's AI or whatever, now you're looking at being able to assemble all of these bits and pieces into into one space, and then then find them effectively. So obviously DeFi is hot now, and you know most projects are claiming to either be a DeFi project or to be highly relevant, but you know clearly Fetch is very applicable to the the world of DeFi in that it will allow for greater levels of complexity in in terms of the kind of financial products or instruments that are going to exist in in the DeFi world. So you guys have a a couple of projects, uh, MetalX, which is a decentralized commodities market, and Atomics, which is allowing for atomic swaps. Um, I know that Hermione has led both of those initiatives. For those that aren't aware, Hermione also has a very deep background in the commodities world. But could you could you talk through those two examples of how Fetch is being deployed? I guess it's in the DeFi context. I mean, you could argue it's actually bridging between decentralized finance and, and centralized finance, right? To a certain extent, uh, yes. And I mean, as, as you touched on, there's a lot of people who are using the word DeFi right now. And, and to a lesser extent, it kind of reminds me of the late 90s when people were slapping .com on the end of anything they wanted to and trying to be seen as an internet business. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of that misinformation out there about what is and what isn't uh, potentially a, a key component part of, of constructing decentralized finance. But I think the one thing that everybody realizes and, and knows and understands that actually this technology is able to build this stuff. And then when you're able to combine all of these different components in interesting ways, then the kind of range of financial instruments that you can, you can construct is suddenly a lot broader than it would otherwise be. Um, the decentralized uh, commodities exchange of um, MetalX is actually really interesting because it's designed to make things, funnily enough, a lot simpler to, to, to get rid of some of the, the complexity of, of, of hedging and derivatives, which people find so complex, and provide a method of, of getting some degree of protection against, against price moves. And there's a whole lot of unique things that are in there. So they've got a dual token system for short tokens and, and long tokens. And we've been very pleased with what it is that we've been able to build with that and, and the fact that, that it is these technologies, the technologies relating to Fetch and, and technologies relating to um, modern decentralized uh, um, bits and pieces generally and cryptography generally, that's actually allowed us to do it. Um, and it, it means that the, the costs are a lot lower um, and uh, it's, it's a lot easier for people to get involved and, and some of the barriers to entry that were previously exist uh, aren't there. And things like smart contracts and, and the generations of smart contracts to come. I mean, we're 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 sort of touching the beginning of this this right now. Um, uh, and and that was one of the things that Ethereum in particular first gave us all a glimpse of that uh, these programmatic um, smart contracts would be able to to make these decisions independently of, of human intervention, uh, and that would make uh, these kind of, of transfers and applications very 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 practical for the first time. But, you know, you've still got costs involved in doing that and something that we've, we've seen recently with Ethereum costs. Uh, and some of the newer generations of technologies are, are able or built specifically to, to enable this kind of stuff. And that's certainly one of the things that we've been doing with Fetch. 
So obviously it's natural that some of the first use cases that would happen on Fetch would be DeFi related. But you know the network, as I understand it, now has over 140,000 different agents, active agents on it today. And you know DeFi is just a subset of those. I know that you're, you alluded to this distribution delivery network. I know mobility is a big focus area for you. It has been over the last several years. Um, you've had a number of different use cases, trains, cars, parking. Could you, could you talk about why this is so relevant to mobility and, and bring to life perhaps how some, how agents are being fetch agents are being used in, in mobility systems? Oh yeah. Um, in fact, any, any problem with a very, very, very large number of moving parts is a problem that autonomous economic agents can probably help you with. Um, and that includes things like supply chains. Uh, but mobility is the big one because mobility is the one that affects us all on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and it's a huge problem area as well. So uh, if you the reason why we've been building this decentralized delivery network, of course, is because uh, the idea is that with the cryptographic technologies that we have now, uh, there is no reason why you shouldn't, in a decentralized way, be able to connect somebody who wants to get in a car and go somewhere to somebody who has that car. Um, and that is effectively a decentralized ride-hailing network that can be built without any centralized entity on top and yet can still exist in a trusted environment. So with things like verifiable credentials, and uh, other methods of proving information that's relevant, such as uh, proof of location, um, smart contracts to, to govern how all of this works and deal with dispute resolution, a blockchain to provide history, trust, and reputation, um, depending on, of course, uh, what it is that you, you put on there to make that possible, AI to analyze it, and the ability to be able to conduct something a little bit grander, because it's sometimes it's, it's not necessarily that you want to deliver yourself home from from a bar uh, at night. Sometimes you want to deliver yourself to another country for a four-day conference and get back. And conducting all of those component parts is considerably more complex. So we built this, it works. So we have the, uh, we've done a couple of, of demos of this recently showing how the decentralized delivery network can act to allow people to be picked up and dropped off where they want to do. And we're gradually scaling that and building it into something grander um, for larger scale deployments. Um, but also, we've been looking at autonomous economic agents uh, lighting up the world in a more meaningful way. So self-driving cars is a big thing right now, but actually getting to um, SAE level four or five uh, full autonomous driving is a little bit much for current AI to do. Uh, whereas if you effectively light up the world and um, by bringing, say, for example, individual signposts, junctions and whatnots uh, to life as, as, as agents, then you create this augmented reality where the load on traditional or current AI um, for analyzing the world around it is reduced because you're providing more information. Uh, and that means that being able to navigate around that 3D space becomes considerably easier as a start. And, and that's another one that we've actually built. We've um, got uh, some great demos of that uh, coming up, showing how that uh, influences our ability to make self, uh, true self-driving cars, autonomous driving, actually work. And we built an, another system this year relating to the UK railway network, where we deployed individual agents for every single station and train um, live. And of course, that can be deployed. There are other APIs that exist uh, across the world. And suddenly you've got this picture, this world, 
where you've got agents representing passengers, representing um, taxis, representing signs, junctions, representing stations, trains, and you've got this huge effective mobility-related population of agents, which of course means if you stand in that space anywhere and do a search, you can come up with all the things that are relevant to you. And from that, you can then plan according to your personal preferences, but without leaking your personal details, which is really exciting. So you can suddenly get the best route to get from where you are to where you want to be and have it change in real time and have the information that's relevant to you delivered to you without you having to pay attention on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in order to ensure that you don't drop something. And it's that turning everything inside out um, that, that is key to this. We're trying to change this, or we are changing this, so that instead of you as a human being having to chain, uh, check five different apps um, and pay attention to all of this, this data, um, the data that's relevant to you is delivered to you, uh, including stuff that you never might have thought was there. Uh, and it's that additional bit that makes it super interesting as well. So, I mean, this is one of those things, and this is this is why I've always found Fetch such a fascinating project is when you imagine a world where you have massive deployment of these trustworthy agent-based systems, um, and you have an agent associated to you know your person or your devices, um, the kind of the imagination runs wild. Like what's, so let's assume that's happened. Let's assume um, Fetch's agents are now everywhere. These bottom-up markets are forming between agents. What fundamentally changes, the, what, the human experience, how does that change? Because um, I could imagine that, you know, why would you need a search engine anymore? Why would you visit websites anymore? Why would you have to navigate around adverts it, it it becomes an entirely different web yeah good question why indeed um and 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 that's that's one of the side effects of turning it inside out um the things that are relevant to you come to you and for, for you to have to wade through pages and pages and try and figure out what keywords to, to to get the things that you want um that potentially all goes it's about taking the complexity out of your life and i, I think we forget sometimes just how many of these silly little hoops that we, we have to jump through. And, and you know, it's, it's like going, if, for, for, for those that still go shopping, you know, you walk around the supermarket and you put everything in a trolley and you get to the till, you take it all out and then you put it all back in again. And it's those kind of things that's, that's utterly insane. Um, the, the little things that we do that are inconvenient. And I, I think we forget that when we travel anywhere, just how stressful it is and just how much we have to do to ensure that it works. And if it stops working for any reason, again, just how much of the responsibility for fixing it actually falls on our shoulders. And, and when you bring all of this to life in, with, with autonomous economic agents, you've got an agent that represents you. It knows what, what you want. It knows your preferences. It's out there in that space doing context-sensitive searches, finding the other agents that can solve the problems for you in real time. And it's far more human way of working um, because you know, generally we're quite unpredictable in, in these things and, and we, we change things at a moment's notice. And, and some of the planning that we have to do uh, takes away that, that flexibility and this puts it all back. Uh, and, and that's certainly one aspect um, of, of, of how it changes our lives in a meaningful way. It, it makes them easier. Um, and, and, and solves problems actively rather than, than us having to pay attention to it. 
So hopefully by now, listeners will have an appreciation for how something like fetch.ai completes or even expands Web3 in terms of what's going to be possible um, with these technologies that are kind of centered on, on users rather than platforms. Um, but I just want to also acknowledge, you know, you guys as a team uh, have been a pleasure to work with, but you've continued to ship, you know, despite the winter, despite what happens in the secondary markets. And uh, I think now the world is really starting to appreciate just what Fetch represents. So I just want to say well done to you and the team for, for riding that storm as well. No, thank you very much. Um, and, and you're right about shipping. And this is this is the important thing, isn't it? And we've got this grand vision and, and we know that this fits in with the economy at the moment. And we know that it scales in the future. And a, a lot about the future is going to be getting more out of what we've got, making better use out of the assets that we have, not throwing away so much data, um, not shipping things around in, in largely empty containers, uh, and, and generally reducing the pain that's involved in getting anything whether it's a person, a package, a piece of data or anything from one place to another. And that's all about discoverability. And that's all about making it painfully easy to do this. And that's what we're doing at Fetch. Uh, you can build these agents to represent the assets that you already have. You can pop them into this world at virtually no cost to yourselves. And then they can be discovered as part of other people's solutions and combined in new and interesting ways. And that's what is really exciting, I think, about this new world. Well, there can't be a bigger purpose than you know, this imperative of removing inefficiencies in the world. And, um, and clearly, that's kind of the, uh, the big intent behind Fetch. So, Toby, look, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Um, looking forward to getting uh, a glass or two of wine in with you at, at some point when the world becomes a bit more sensible. I look forward to that, too. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.